Galatians chapter 4 and I'd like to read from verse 1. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Amen. The Lord bless to us this reading from his word. The apostle has shown the Galatians that they are heirs of God by promise. That's how he ended the previous chapter. Of course, there were no chapter divisions or even verse divisions when the apostle wrote his epistle, but he ended the previous chapter by telling uh, that the, the, the Galatians that they were heirs of God according to the promise. And this means that God had promised out of his own good pleasure to save and to bless and to reconcile these people to himself and glorify them eternally in his son. Uh, This is is God's purpose. This is God's work, the salvation of his people. And in stressing this aspect of promise, Paul is distancing himself and his ministry, and indeed the whole apostolic gospel, from all works religion which teaches that men and women can and indeed must do something to ingratiate themselves to God, to obtain forgiveness, to secure his mercy and to earn his goodwill and his pleasure. So Paul is distancing himself from that. He's saying these two things are incompatible. These two things cannot be connected. You're either saved by grace or you're saved by works. You either um, have the the, the heirship, the, the inheritance by promise, or you have it uh, by your own labours. And grace is by definition a gift. And Paul shows that even the faith to receive God's gifts is itself a gift from God. Because it's not even our faith that saves us, but rather it is Christ who saves us and Christ's faith by which we are able to lay hold upon in believing the accomplishments of our Lord upon the cross. And the Judaizers who had come to the churches in Galatia, remember we, we've spoken about the fact that these churches were in Turkey, so it's that uh, uh, um, a little north 
of, of Israel and, and round into the bottom part there uh, of, um, of sort of where Europe and Asia start to, to, to join. Asia Minor is, is what it used to be called. But the Judaizers had come into the area of Galatia and they were disrupting the peace of the Galatian churches and they were troubling these young believers um, by speaking of creature duty and uh, additions, uh, additional requirements that were uh, being put upon the, the, the young believers. And Paul strongly opposed their teaching by insisting that salvation is all of grace being founded upon the promises of God in the everlasting covenant of peace. And this reference to being an heir of promise is what he is continuing to speak about here in chapter 4. Being an heir of God by promise is a reference to the cleansing blood and righteousness of Christ by which God reconciles sinners to himself and makes them fit for heaven and acceptable for his presence. Or as Paul wrote elsewhere, um, it, it makes them holy, unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight. What a catalogue of amazing uh, uh, blessings that is. Holy, unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. And the apostle had used the example of Abraham in chapter 3 because the Lord promised Abraham that he would make Abraham righteous in Christ. And in believing God, Abraham experienced and enjoyed the benefits and the blessings of being, as the, the Apostle James tells us, the friend of God. So to be an heir of God is to be an heir of God's righteousness, an heir of salvation, an heir of all God's goodness and an heir of his glory. All the gifts of God's grace are our inheritance by promise because God promised to freely give all good things to his elect, chosen and beloved people. And these promises come upon the merit, come upon the grounds of Christ's accomplishments, Christ's sacrificial work. So that's the gospel, that's the message that the apostle has been stressing to these Galatians, that they were not to give up, that they were not to forgo, that they were not to deny by following the teachings of these Judaizers. But Paul isn't finished yet by expanding on this privilege of the church's inheritance in Christ. And he begins this chapter by saying, Now I say. So here he has stressed the fact that we have this uh, inheritance uh, from God in Christ by promise, and he is building up this idea of what it means to be an heir. And he wants to teach us another gospel truth, and he compares the status of an heir while he's still a minor, before he comes to maturity, with that of a servant, and he explains how outwardly there appears to be no difference. 
So although the, the, the child in a household was heir to his father's property, while he was still a child, he wasn't any different from a servant. He, he, he still had the uh, limitations upon him that a servant would had, have, someone who wasn't a, a son at all. And, and Paul says uh, the, the, the child is heir to all things, uh, all of his father's riches, but until the time appointed by the father, he does not have access to the benefits or enjoy the, the, the benefit of what nevertheless belongs to him by inheritance. And he, he goes on, he, he builds on that. He says, actually, the child is ruled by tutors and governors who order his day and direct his activities and discipline his behaviour. And this is a picture of the church in its infancy, especially perhaps under the Old Testament dispensation, as it waited for Christ's coming and the fullness of time when the Messiah would be revealed. Then the church was ordered by tutors and governors or prophets and judges and types and patterns and symbols and sacrifices. And these pointed forward to the coming of Christ in the fullness of time. But they did not give to the church the full liberty of faith. Rather, the Jewish church was, says Paul, kept under the law, shut up unto the faith, which should afterwards be revealed and were in bondage under the elements of the world. That is, the tangible, visible patterns of which Christ would prove to be the antitype or the fulfilment. And I, and I hope we realise that this does not deny in any way the spiritual understanding or the faith of the Old Testament saints. I, I hope in our studies in Isaiah we are appreciating that those old believers had, had such a, a wonderful view, such a depth and richness to their view of the Messiah that uh, in many ways um, it, it was comparable with our own, even us looking uh, in, in retrospect upon what the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished. They, they had the gospel of Isaiah uh, set before them in, 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 a, in a beautiful uh, and in a profound way. But the Judaizers were now, in the days of the Galatians, in the days of the New Testament... They were trying to reimpose the schoolmaster or the tutor or the governor, these elements of the world, over the son who had come to maturity and who had received his full inheritance. And that was a completely inappropriate and wrong thing to do. And there's another aspect of this as well, which I think is very comforting to us. Paul shows how the church in Christ had a place of security and a position of right. So, so even as a, as, as a child, there still was this promise. It never was 
The, 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 even the Old Testament church never was a servant. Although it looked like a servant in many ways, it never was because the promise was extant. The promise was always there. The church had a place of security and a position of right in Jehovah's love and in his appointment in the everlasting covenant of, of grace and peace. So that the people of God, though they were not even born yet, even before the world was created, they were included in the covenant of grace as the beneficiaries of Christ's sacrifice. They were heirs adopted very early into the scheme of salvation in the eternal decrees of God and into the plan of redemption as those who would be redeemed and for whom uh, Christ's blood was be, would be shed. They were designated the sons of God and made heirs in that covenant purpose. They were elevated to a status not even enjoyed by angels or by Adam in his state of innocence in the garden. And this is an an entitlement which is amazing and ought not to be missed because it shows us that in Christ, before the world began, the whole church, which is the union, the great congregation of every individual believer of the mystical body of Christ, he being the head, the whole church was chosen to holiness, to glory and predestinated to be conformed to the image of Christ in those eternal decrees. And here's another interesting point, I think, to note from these verses. We've been speaking uh, in our Isaiah studies about the anticipation of the Old Testament church concerning the coming of the Messiah and how they waited long for his arrival. Well, that time of his arrival is here given a name by Paul. It is called the fullness of time. And he tells us it was when the fullness of time was come that God sent forth his son. So this was the appointed time. This was the perfect time when Every minute detail of God's eternal plan to that moment was fully accomplished. There's nothing random or uncertain in God's timing. Nothing extra, nothing missed. And that's an important point for us to note. Paul also goes on to say that there is a time for the church and for the Lord's people individually to be blessed. A time of love for each of us. A time to be favoured. A time to be blessed. A time when God, to, to quote the psalmist, a time when God shall arise and have mercy upon Zion. For the time to favour her, yea, the set time is come. That was the fullness of time. 
That was what the Old Testament church waited for, longed for, all through the years, all through the centuries, millennia indeed. The, there was this expectation, this anticipation of Christ's coming. And the, one of the hymn writers, John Kent, uh, he says this, There is a period known to God when all his sheep redeemed by blood shall leave the hateful ways of sin, turn to the fold and enter in. There is a fullness in time. The fullness of time when Christ came and the fullness of time in which every event and eventuality comes to pass according to the purpose of God. The years of our lives are measured and numbered, like the hairs of our head, our hours, our minutes, our tears, our joys, our breaths. They're numbered. And this ought to be a source of great comfort to us all, remembering that our God loves us with an everlasting love. We shall remain in this world not one moment longer than the Lord has ordained in love. And it's also a comfort to those who have watched their loved ones pass into God's presence. They left us not a moment too soon. And the Lord who ordained their passing into his presence ordained the days that we should be without them and how long until we join them in the presence of our Saviour. So let us, let us take that as a comfort. Let us extend that indeed. We get so concerned about time and when things will happen. But our times are in God's hands and in the purposes of God there is nothing in the ordained will of the mighty king will speed up or slow down the completion of his purpose and the glory of his name and the well-being of his people. Let us live our years, our days, our hours and our minutes in the knowledge that the passage of time is in God's keeping, who loves us, who gave himself for us and who does the best for us and that all things work together according to the fulfilment of his timing and for our good. And here's just one more thing that I want to say in these verses and then we're done. Let us note also this little phrase that Paul uses in verse 6. Because ye are sons. The timing, the circumstances, the dealings of God with us and what he allows and does not allow to enter our lives is determined by this one criterion. Because ye are sons. There's no free will in that verse. Because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Sons by adoption in the eternal purposes of God and in his covenant plan. Sons by election. Sons because of God's everlasting love towards us. 
sons by redeeming grace, sons by conversion into the worldwide body of Christ. Brothers and sisters, you and I have been brought to be the children of God. The Spirit of Christ is in our hearts by promise because it was promised to those that he set apart in their head in the eternal covenant of grace. And all the blessings of God's grace and goodness are ours in him. We are able to say, Abba, Father. How sweet, how familiar and comforting that term is. It is the tenderest of names and it tells us that our Father looks after us and watches over us with constant, tender, loving care. David said in Psalm 31, My times are in thy hand. Deliver me from the hand of mine enemies and from them that persecute me. And we we read on uh, Sunday past in Isaiah 52, The Lord is before us and behind us. He's in our future and in our past. He says to Isaiah, For ye shall not go out with haste, nor go out by flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your reward. The Lord our God is before us and behind us, and he has us in the palms of his hand. What a beautiful picture this is of God's care and comfort for his people. May it be an encouragement to our hearts today. Amen.